for our main speaker this afternoon, Dr. Lorraine Barton. Dr. Barton will present this opening address. She will challenge us to consider what medical evangelism really is and what role we each can play. She's an active practicing neonatologist at Los Angeles County Women's and Children's Hospital with ministry experience as the head of a nonprofit of a nonprofit agency and president of ASI Pacific Union and a board member of AMEN. She's currently doing a pre-med residency at Loma Linda University. Dr. Lorraine Barton. The Lord is doing a new work in, among us, isn't he? Isn't this a marvelous meeting so far? Last Thursday, I was asked to go up and see a gentleman that just couldn't wait. You know, we were supposed to have clinic. It was supposed to start in a few, in about an hour. But this man was in a hurry, didn't want to wait. And so the nurse asked me if I would please go up and see him a little bit early. So I walked up to the room and um, walked into where this gentleman was. And wow, he was scary. This man was about six foot five, I would guess. He was about 290 pounds, I think, covered from head to toe with tattoos. If I'd seen him out on the street, I would have been really kind of a little bit frightened of this gentleman. But he was nice, he was pleasant, he didn't scare me at all, uh, from what he said anyway. And he was there because uh, I, this happens to be my rotation on the smoking cessation unit, and I'm trying to help the different people get off of their smoking, which most of them have been on for 30 or 40 years. So I sat down to try to turn on the computer. All of, all of you who work at the VA know how you have to get into the computer. It takes you a few minutes to get all your passwords in and everything like that. And I hadn't said anything much to him except, hello, how can I help you, and things like that. And he turned to me and said, what church do you go to? <laughs> That's kind of strange. And I said, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And he said, I thought so, I thought so because you're not wearing any jewelry or any makeup or anything like that. Well, I didn't want to be known for that was why I was a Seventh-day Adventist. But I asked him, uh, what made you ask that question? And he said, well, I, was, I used to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I was a Seventh-day Adventist for 15 years. used to go right here at, at the Campus Hill Church. But I'm an alcoholic. I smoke. I drink. I have been using drugs, and I just just this last week, got out of a absolutely you know, life sentence. If I had gotten convicted, I would have been in jail forever. So I'm praising the Lord today. I'm in the 12-step program. I'm ready to turn my life back over to the Lord. And you know, this scary gentleman, before I even had a chance to do much else, we were able to pray together, um, and we were able to talk and before he left, after I did all the things that we needed to do, this man actually came up and hugged me. I've never had that happen from a big, scary person like that. And it was quite, quite amazing to me. But I, of course, invited him back, too. I told him, you know, you don't have to stay away just because you've been smoking, just because you backslid. He goes to the Baptist church, not to the Adventist church, because he's afraid, of course, to come back to the Adventist church right now. Well, my topic today actually is titled Serving God and Saving Souls because this is what we really want for amen. I believe the Lord really is beginning to do a new work. And if you have remembered what the new General Conference's theme is for this year, and maybe this quinquennium, what is it? Tell the world. And so ASI added on to that, tell them now. And then our main speaker at ASI, just here in August, said, well, what are we going to tell them? And so they, they put all those themes together, you know, tell the world, tell them now, what are we going to tell them? But you know what? I think we need to know why we need to tell them. 
And I think it's because they need to know. Every single person I have come in contact with, it seems to me, in the last year or two, compared to the first 30 years of my practice, just absolutely needs to know something more about God or is wanting to know or else is totally, absolutely not interested and doesn't want you to talk about it. One of those two things is happening. And if you're open and if you're listening to what the Lord is doing in their lives, it can make a major, major difference. So tonight I actually want to um, start with three key points. It's what, what do we really want amen to accomplish and what do we want our group here to accomplish? We're not very big yet. What can we do? How can we get more people involved? And why haven't we as a church or as a group of Adventist physicians, why haven't we accomplished what the Lord set out to do through, through the medical work so many years ago, almost 120 years ago now? Why haven't we accomplished that at this time? And then the last point I'd like to make is how do we accomplish it? What, what can we do to change all of this long-standing, um, not that we have not done anything at all. We've done a lot. We have a wonderful medical system all throughout the world. So I don't want to imply to any of you that you haven't already been doing the Lord's work. I don't want to imply that our hospitals have not done any good for the Lord. We have. But just like Israel of old, we haven't really met the Lord's plan for his work. Isn't that true? Wouldn't you all think that? So uh, what, what I think we need to do is think about first what we want to accomplish. And maybe the question really should be not what we want to accomplish, but what does God want to accomplish through us? And I think that uh, he has a plan and a purpose But is it my plan or is it his plan? This is what I'd really like to think about for myself. And this, this, um, these three questions are really questions that I personally have had and have tried to study out. What is God's plan for my life and what, what can I do? So before we really get started, could we just bow our heads again for just a minute? Lord Jesus, I want to ask you tonight to come here to be with us, to help us understand what your purpose is for our lives, for our medical work, for our educational work, for what the purpose that you want Amen to accomplish. And I ask your Holy Spirit to be with me tonight, to be here in this audience, that we may listen to your word and to your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I have two scriptures I'd like you to look at with me. The first is Isaiah 50, verse 4. We're just going to read them, and then later we're going to get back to them. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Now, those are, those are verses that we've heard many times before, but I'd like to, uh, to talk about them a little bit more. The second one is also in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 35, uh, 1 through 10. And you know this one very well as one of the things that is talking about the glory of Zion and of heaven. So let's just read through those verses. It's, it's a fairly long passage, but I think it's important because we're going to talk about what these verses really mean to us. I'm reading from the uh, New King James uh, Version. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. 
And now here's the verses we just love to quote and knowing what's going to happen soon when we get to heaven. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, the parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes, A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray, nor shall any ravenous beast go up upon it, shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy, On their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Well, you know, those verses remind me of what the promises are for the future. But I am here to tell you tonight that we can have those promises right now fulfilled in the ways that we reach out to our families, our friends, our patients. Because God wants to give us that. And everything I'm quoting to you tonight is, is basically from just the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and one other source, which I'll tell you later. But I believe that God does have a purpose for each one of the Christian physicians and dentists that are here. And you know, most of the time, the Bible speaks only about physicians. And Wendell, that's only because I don't think there were dentists up until about 200 years ago. Am I correct? So there's always been physicians from the earliest beginning of time, but there's only been dentists for a very few years. And somehow I'd never given dentists, you know, I didn't think they were quite as important as physicians. But I read recently that until dentistry came along, did you know that more people died because their teeth were infected back in the, you know, like 200 years ago, 300 years ago, Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died because they got infected, their teeth, and that got into their bloodstream, and that was very severe. And only when dentistry was invented or came around did, did we actually start really seeing a change in, in the life cycle. It's not all been just from physicians. So in case I forget to mention dentists every once in a while, you just remind me that um, that's a very important thing. So I believe that it really is God's purpose to use every Christian physician, and not just physicians, but dentists, nurses, um, other health professions, teachers, whoever you are here tonight, God has a plan to use you in his work. And not everybody can do the same thing, but he, he has a way for us to witness to, to people that we personally come in contact with. And that's where this verse about... He has given us the tongue of the learned. He wants us to be able to, wherever we go, whoever we come in contact with, he wants us to be able to speak a word at the right time. And uh, wouldn't we, as physicians and dentists and others, be just thrilled if we could not just heal the people for this world, but heal them for eternity? This is our real goal uh, with Amen. So we're not just here to teach us to be a better physician, although that's extremely important, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Well, why haven't the majority of dentists and doctors and other health professionals really accomplished the duty, the sacred duty that we have been trying for so many years, over 120 years, to to meet this goal? We talk about it a lot, and a lot of people... in in my acquaintance anyway, are really interested in the health message. A lot of people that have no background in medical work are interested in the health message. Everybody knows it's the right arm of the message and talk about it all the time. But why haven't we done it? Didn't we have a good enough pattern? Haven't we been given enough instruction? Don't we have enough knowledge? Why is this? Who is our real pattern for medical missionary work? It's Christ. Jesus is a good enough pattern. So why haven't we been able to 
to get to this point where we're actually all working together and meeting the actual blueprint that we keep talking about that would make our whole message just spread throughout the world like wildfire. Well, I found that that is a really very, very deep question. You know, the Bible should be our textbook, not for every medical problem. Certainly, uh, it doesn't tell us how to treat every single disease or anything like that, but this book does teach us how to treat every single person, every single patient. It does teach us how to treat people, and that's one of the things we need to learn as a medical professional. So I did find, as I studied, I tried to study for myself why we haven't been able to meet all of these goals that we would like. And I found several. Um, In Testimonies, Volume 3, I found that there is a great necessity for reformation among the people of God, and the present state of the church leads to this inquiry. Is this a correct representation of him who gave his life for us? Well, what about the medical missionary work? Is there any difference? What about the medical ministry? If if we're saying that about the church in general, I think the same could be said for our medical work. Are we as a whole, as professionals, medical professionals, are we living up to giving a correct representation of what God's plan was for us? I think a lot of us uh, have a burden for this. I know the Lord has placed it on my heart that this is a burden, that we have not lived up to it completely. Yes, we've done a lot of good work, and there's wonderful mission work going on all over the world. And we have our wonderful uh, medical school and dental school and all the different schools that are out there at Loma Linda and in other places of the world. But is it where God wants us to be? And I had to uh, realize that we haven't met that vision completely. We've met it partially but not completely. Three weeks ago, Linda walked into my office. It was my day to do uh, women's health, and it was a very interesting day because I was pretty busy, and she was my last patient of the day. And she came in, and it was just for her routine yearly checkup. And as we were taking the history and getting all the information, She said to me, you know, I've been really concerned as to why I haven't been able to get pregnant. And I said, oh, are you interested in getting pregnant? And then I looked at her age. Her age was 47. Uh, She was young looking. She didn't look that old to me. She maybe looked like she was 38, 39, but she was 47. And I said to her, well, um, have you been trying for very long? Oh, yes, I've been trying for 20 years, and I've never been able to get pregnant. And I've asked many doctors, nobody has told me anything about why I couldn't get pregnant. And I would like to know, you know, as part of my workup, you know, why can't I get pregnant? As I took a little history, she was a very pleasant lady, very well-dressed, very nice, uh, looked like, she actually looked like she could have been an Adventist girl. She was dressed well, she was not extravagant, She was conservative looking. But as I started talking to her a little bit more, to try to find out a little bit more about her history, her her family, her marriage, maybe if she had, had any other problems, I found out that Linda had only been a Christian for 10 years, about 10 to 12 years. She'd been a missionary in in India. She was, uh, had, had lived a pretty, seriously uh, bad life, you might say, before that. And, but she said the Lord. she had come to the Lord, and ever since then it had been just wonderful. She'd been in India. She was a missionary. She was now attending a wonderful evangelical church. But it really surprised me. She had had, seriously, over 50 partners. She's never been married. She's currently with a person who uh, she didn't even like, but she's trying to get pregnant. Okay, this is a little unusual for me. I I work in a um, neonatal intensive care unit. I see women every day 
who, you know, have backgrounds that are pretty, pretty unusual. We get a lot of the people from the jails. We have a lot of patients that are on drugs and alcohol and smoking. But I haven't seen that many patients before who had 40 or 50 partners. And as I talked with her, I started sharing with her, do you think that's what the Lord really wants you to do, to be with this person? And there's no, you know, you're not married, you haven't even made a commitment, you're not even thinking about that. And she immediately, you know, said, no, 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 I know this isn't right. I know the Lord isn't happy with me. I know this, but I just don't know what to do. And so we started talking. Her problem was not that she needed to get pregnant. Her problem was she just had no self-esteem whatsoever. This is what happens to the majority of people. When you start speaking to people that have a problem, whether it's smoking, whether it's drinking, whether it's drugs, no matter what it is, whether they're hearing voices, no matter, their background is so, so sad. They have much, much need for the Lord. And this is why I'm saying to you, these people really need to know. I was able to pray with Linda. I was able to give her uh, some uh, materials. I was able to uh, to talk with her about what she could do to change this situation and give her a little bit of hope for not just living from day to day and living that kind of a life. So what did I find as I started uh, studying how to, how to make a better chance that we could have our health message really do? Oh, it was sad. I found out that one of the major reasons that God's people don't have this happening as a group. Individually, we do see that people are living for the Lord. And individually, we see that many people are sharing, sharing the Lord with others. But as a group, it's because they don't have enough faith. It's listed clearly in both the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that if we're filled with selfishness, which is the root problem, we cannot get to the, to the point where we are able to help anybody from a spiritual nature. So it is the basic root problem that we have had for all of these years is selfishness. It's not the abundance of our meetings. It's not the abundance of how much we pray. You know, I found out that it's not how much we pray. Uh, it's not any of that that the Lord accepts. It's not the numerous things, but it's doing the right thing at the right time. And I believe that that's what this organization has been founded for. I really believe that. That this organization has come into being so that we can get back to the right thing, doing the right thing at the right time. And I believe that God is calling us to have a spiritual revival first and then a medical revival secondly for our group. And um, when I was reading this, it was talking about Reformation and you know, this type of thing, reformation, uh, re- revival. Revival it signifies that you have a renewal of your spiritual life. So I guess that would mean you'd, you'd go back to church, you'd start praying again, you'd do the things that we think of as spiritual. That's what a revival is. But a reformation, that signifies that you're just doing a complete reorganization. You're changing the way you've done everything in the past. That's what Reformation is. Well, Reformation doesn't bring about good fruit, doesn't bring about anything unless it's connected with the revival of the Holy Spirit. So you have to have them both together. You have to have Reformation, but you have to have revival from the Holy Spirit. And our medical evangelism has been broken, and it needs healing. Any of you ever broken your right arm? How many here have broken their right arm? Yay, okay, I see two or three people. I broke my right arm very severely, what, about four, five years ago, so severely that I couldn't work for three months and had to have two or three surgeries. It hurts to break your right arm. Also, if you're right-handed, you can't do anything. I had to have my husband help me to eat, to dress, to take a shower at the beginning, all of those things. And then I learned to use my left arm pretty well. I didn't need any help anymore. But that took a long time to heal. And you know, 
When you have a break that is severe, it doesn't always heal totally normally either. Those of you who are orthopedic physicians, I'm sure you know that, that sometimes when you get a break, does it heal always straight and perfect again? No. I've, I've had other x-rays taken since then by other people who didn't even know I had a fracture, and they always say, when did you have your fracture? You know, they know because it's not completely back to normal. So have you ever wondered in the past why Ellen White told parents not to let their children go to Battle Creek College? I'm sure most of you here have heard all the stories about, about John Harvey Kellogg, and I know that you've heard about his life quite a bit. Adventists are pretty familiar with John Harvey Kellogg and what he did and how he built the sanitarium too large and all of those things that he did. But as I started to study what went wrong with our Adventist medical system, I was pretty shocked to find out that it may have all started right at that point, you know, at that time period. And we may have just thought it was all just related to one person, and it was in a way, really. But what did it, what did it really do? Well, first of all, when you look at John Harvey Kellogg's life, and this isn't to put him down or to demean him at all. I'm just using him as, a, as an example of how a person in their life as a medical physician can go down the wrong path, and then that leads to consequences of a large degree that doesn't get you back on the right track very easily. First of all, he went to the University of Michigan after having gone to some little uh, course, just taking something like a a three or four month course for a while, and he practiced medicine for a while, but then realized, I've got to go back and do it right. So he went to the University of Michigan with several other Adventist physicians and, and others. And guess what they did as students? They were very similar to a lot of students today. They stayed up late as students. They stayed up frequently, especially John Harvey Kellogg. He would stay up till two and three in the morning to study. I'm sure he made good grades, but he stayed up late every day. Now, why is that important? We'll get to that in a minute. The second thing he did was he compromised on many different issues. He did compromising. For example, he was quite musical. I wasn't aware of that until I started studying about it. He was musical. He played the violin and several other instruments, as a matter of fact. And he was, because this was a uh, public university, they, they were, he and his brother were invited to play their violin for dances. And so he compromised. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, as you know, but he, um, he justified that playing his violin at dances because the students were at least having exercise. And so that was kind of important. Um, so little compromises all through his early life and when he was studying. And then some other characteristics about him through the years. These are not necessarily in any particular order, but I just thought that they were interesting because I think it affected the way he thought and the way he worked and the way he interacted with church and the church leaders. He had a desire for personal recognition. This was far greater than most people. His, his desire for personal recognition was so great that he would sometimes just go out of his way to make sure that you know his name was in the paper or that people knew who he was or that he had written that particular book or that particular article. He had a tendency also to assume complete control over anything he got involved with. He was a very controlling individual and any project he was associated with, it wasn't good unless he was the one in charge. A very important um, character defect, in my humble opinion. Um, He also resisted reproof and suggestion. Reproof and suggestions from somebody else in your group or in your among your teachers, extremely important that you learn how to take reproof and to take it kindly and wisely and whatever. He also, at times, back and forth, even though he thought so highly of himself, would had a very severe problem with feeling unappreciated. 
And I've seen this happen with a lot of people, especially those who are having trouble with mental uh, problems, that they, they think so highly of themselves, but at the same time, they often get depressed and they feel unappreciated and feel like people are not giving them enough, enough recognition. He actually had admitted to Ellen White several times in, in letters and also in talking with her in person that, that selfish pride was one of his problems. And he was so strong-willed and stubborn. And it, this also made him irritable. And one of the other reasons he was irritable was that staying up late as a student didn't just stay during that time, but it continued throughout his whole life. Uh, he also never claimed to have patience. And I don't mean patience that we take care of but he was impatient. He was a very impatient person. And um, he claimed that was his least virtue. He didn't really think he was patient, and he admitted that. And when you really go back and look at his life, I think today, if there's any psychiatrists among us, we would probably call him bipolar. I don't know what those of you who think, but he had extremely, I think, bipolar tendencies with racing thoughts all the time. Many, many people that, that uh, do all these things and are very, very uh, involved and in, involved in everything at the same time, they often have racing thoughts. But he had many of the people that were around him, uh, people within the church and, and others that are, were trying to deal with him, sometimes he'd be in a meeting and it would be like his, they, they couldn't understand what he was saying. He would be talking incessantly but they weren't, it wasn't making meaningful sense. But at the same time, you know, he had great powers of leadership, and he was very persuasive. You know how he was able to persuade people to, to get the sanitarium in debt and things like this. He had great public relations abilities. And on the positive side, he, was, he investigated the natural remedies and the things that Ellen White Uh, had learned in her visions and the things that the other natural remedies people of the day uh, uh, were involved with and he was he was very much in favor of the health message so he was one of the ones who promoted the health message the most in our church in the early days he persuaded uh, tried really hard to persuade uh, others about the health message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church he worked hard to persuade any American he could find to a vegetarian diet. Uh, he, he persuaded people to give up coffee and tea, alcohol, tobacco. He was one who promoted only two meals a day. And he spoke against too much protein, too much eating overall back in his day. Talk about not overeating, not getting obese, because they had some obese people then. And that overweight people should limit the amount of food that they were eating, the total amount of calories. And he also said they should eat more fresh greens, uh, more vegetables, and give up sweets. And along with, he said that that, along with exercise and sweat baths, would, would restore people to health. Wow, I think he would make the best internal medicine uh, metabolic syndrome doctor today, don't you? I really think he was. He was, he was really into making people overcome things that we would probably call today metabolic syndrome and diabetes and overweight. Uh, However, he contributed largely to the differences between the medical professionals in the church and the church leadership. He was the one who was, there was a constant battle. This wasn't just over a year or two. This was ongoing for many, many years in our church, that there was this battle between what the ministers were doing and what the doctors were doing. And he had a lot of influence on the physicians of the day. And so most of the physicians sided with uh, Dr. Kellogg and you know, went that direction because that's what, what he believed in. He became very, very interested in humanitarian endeavors. Now this to me was very interesting because um, I've seen a little bit of this uh, in my local area where you know a person may get just so overwhelmed with humanitarian things, but they don't want to bring up anything related to the church, right? They want to go out and do a lot of things and just get known for Seventh-day Adventists are are really nice people and we like to do this and we like to do that. Well, what he did uh, worried Ellen White so much that she talked to him about this. She said he was making this too prominent. 
he was using up funds that should have been used for other parts of the work. You know, she was, she kept telling the people of, of, of the medical profession that that was not their only goal, that their goal was to save souls. But he was focused that they should go down to Chicago. Uh, they should start uh, all of these um, endeavors. He started a Chicago medical mission that was one of the largest down there. And they had homes for uh, wayward children and for pregnant ch- uh, women, pregnant young girls, and for he had a, a place for 700 uh, homeless people. They served some weeks 72,000 meals a day. They were doing all this. They were p- helping people get back to work. And this is why when you read in the testimony sometimes that we're not supposed to take all of our people down to the city centers and stuff like that, you kind of wonder, well, what? why not? Well, not, not that you're not supposed to do those things. We are supposed to do those things. He had just made that the whole point of the message. The message no longer had any theology with it. It was only humanitarian. And then he began to cast out on fundamental Adventist doctrines. That's when that started, when he got so interested in working with others and, and involving other groups and humanitarian things. Then that's when the theology started to kind of go down. And you know what? He was a very prominent physician, but he had very few friends. He was only close to like one or two of his five or six brothers and sisters. He even got, he really had a falling out even with his own brother, Will, that we hear about a lot. And they didn't get along or even speak for many, many years. Uh, At the end of his life, they were close again because he basically was supporting his brother. Um, Another thing that I didn't know until I started studying what went wrong with the with the health message, and particularly what role did he play? He married a a, lo- a lovely lady, but she was not a Seventh-day Adventist. She was a Seventh-day Baptist who had come to work for him in uh, sort of like an administrative assistant. Uh, she did a lot of his dictating and writing letters for him, and etc. And so he did not stick with a Seventh-day Adventist. And I'm not saying that never is that you know, I'm not saying that that was a cardinal sin, but he didn't have that strong commitment to stay uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And then when he realized that people just wouldn't exercise, he was promoting exercise all the time, uh, then he started to develop a lot of mechanical exercise machines. Any of you have been back to Serial City and to, to his museum there? How many of you have visited the, the Kellogg Museum? That's really fascinating, isn't it? I didn't know until I went there how many things he invented. He was a true inventor, and much of his inventions were mechanical things. I think that he, from what they told me there and what I can find out, that he was really the father of most of the gym type of equipment that we used. He invented the dynamometer, which measures muscle strength, and he was heavily into this. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, really, it's just how he divided his time, what he spent his time on. Now, um, he also invented a sanitarium equipment company. So he had had all these businesses on the side. So this was his business for developing and, and making all of these machines, sanitarium equipment company. And he developed a light bath where he, he figured out that if you could see light going through your finger, must be something good about that to the blood vessels. So he invented these things where you sat inside the light boxes and and this is supposed to heal you and make you feel better or whatever. So he invented a lot of these things. And um, remember I told you how he, he stayed up very late all the time during his medical school time? This never changed throughout his whole life. He, he was working hard his whole life from 4 o'clock in the morning till midnight almost every single day. This man did not rest. If you wonder why certain people, you know, have these kind of racing thoughts and problems, I think it had a lot to do with his lack of rest and and exercise. We know he exercised on the bicycle. We see pictures of that. So I always thought he was a very good exerciser. But what I found was that many of the things he advocated for others, he did not really do himself. Interesting, isn't it? So he, he talked about uh, eating uh, 
proper diet and two meals a day. Frequently he would not eat anything or he would eat only one meal a day. He didn't sleep, uh, etc. So contrary to his own teachings, he was extremely irregular in all of his health habits. He didn't have any children himself, but he became a foster father and they adopted some children. He had 42, they had 42 children that lived in their home. And they took in all kinds of kids. Some kids they took in just because their parents had died and they were in the sanitarium and they died and they would bring them home. So he and his wife tried really hard to reach out to other people. As I said, he was a very humanitarian person. And, and so they got a lot of thinking, oh, okay, if we can take care of these, these kids turned out okay, let's go get some of the really bad kids. So they did that. They would go down and get kids from prostitutes uh, and others who had abandoned their children. And they tried to raise these children. But believe it or not, these children did not turn out well. And so actually proving a lot of what Ellen White said about how hereditary and um, and alcohol and drugs affect children, many of those children never did turn out well. I'm not saying every single one. Earlier in his career, uh, when he was more in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, he actually became mentally exhausted many times. He had to take off. And the way he would do this so that people wouldn't know it, because everybody thought he was a healthy person, his wife was a little bit more delicate in her health, and so he would say he was taking her to Florida for a vacation, and he would actually be so exhausted that he was like mentally unable to do anything for sometimes uh, three or four weeks. He collapsed several times, and a complete physical collapse, probably a complete mental collapse at the same time. And he said he never knew what it felt like to be rested his entire life. He developed TB. I don't know if you knew that. He developed TB because of his exhausting schedule. So he never, ever took good care of himself. And he lost most of the organizations he started. He started lots of things like orphanages, had huge orphanage. He had all kinds of things. And he lost most of them eventually to debt uh, because he, he didn't care about going into debt. That wasn't a big problem for him. He just went into debt. He advocated uh, for public recreational areas in Battle Creek, where he lived. And if the, if the city wouldn't come around the way he was thinking, what would he do? He would just go off and do it himself. He, he started a great big um, park and playground on his own property. He had a lot of property and huge area. He must have been a fairly wealthy person and had large home and everything. So he put it on his own property, including a big swimming pool way back then. They had a swimming pool and a playground and all kinds of stuff. And Ellen White herself said that he was converted in 1888. During the time that the 1888 conference happened, she, claimed, she said in her writings that John Harvey Kellogg was completely converted thoroughly. She said thoroughly, but he left the church in 1907 and really never came back. Why did he, why did he leave? He blamed the leaders of the denomination, the pastors and the leaders, for the denomination's backsliding in the health message. So he was always against the pastors because the pastors weren't following the health message. And that was one of the things. So he began to criticize the leadership. Especially, he was upset at them because they were often persuading young, talented men to go into the ministry when he thought they should go into medicine. So there was always this tension between him and the ministers. And he had his own ideas, his own ideas, his own yardstick for deciding what was right and for whether Ellen White's messages were right. He didn't just uh, accept them on face value. He never did that. He, he judged which part of her writings were right and which ones were not. But why do I go into all that extensive detail I think perhaps some of you can see some similarities to what can happen when you do not live a balanced life, when you start having a judgmental attitude, when you start allowing yourself to criticize leadership, and when you start 
feeling that what you decide is better than what anybody else or what you and your colleagues or your church members can do together. So um, I wanted to go in now to the third point, the third and last point that I have, which is how can we better accomplish the plan that somehow got derailed during that 30 or 40 year period that he was basically in charge of the health message? How do we become successful physicians from God's point of view? Well, again, Ellen White says, in visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Many were praising God. The sick were healed, and other miracles were wrought. You know, I know that if you're like me, all through my medical career, I've always wished that I could have more miracles. I wish I could see more miracles. I've prayed for many, many sick, dying babies that were not healed, and I'm sure the same has happened with you. You have sincerely prayed for people, and they haven't all been healed, have they? Not all of our patients are going to be healed in this earth. I know that I've prayed for patients. I prayed for my own mother. We had my mother was dying of lung cancer and brain cancer. My mother never smoked. My mother was never around anybody who ever smoked. She was a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist and um, had no, no bad health habits. So why is it that the Lord doesn't always heal? Last year, if you were here, you learned from Elder Finley that God doesn't just heal in every case, and it isn't that it isn't his will. It's always God's will to heal, right? But it's for his glory. So why, in some cases, are people not healed, and in other times we see another person where they, somebody anoints them and they are healed miraculously? And sometimes in the same church or in the same uh, time period, one person might be healed and the next person is not. Well, we know that it's probably because there are many, many people that God wishes still to reach, and we don't know the hearts. In my own mother's case, for example, I think I sort of know, you know, when... When I was growing up, all of my sisters were Adventist, and four of them left the church. Only one of those has come back. So when when we had my mother anointed, three of my sisters came, and it was the most beautiful, beautiful service you could have ever thought of. You know, my mother called for them herself. We didn't say, would you like to have this? She, she wanted it. And I thought everything was done right. But after we got finished, a few days later, one of my sisters, who's still fairly bitter against the Adventist church, said, that was the worst thing I ever heard. And I will never, ever have him do the funeral service because that was my mother's pastor, you know, but... My sister was controlling the funeral service. She wouldn't let him even do anything at the funeral service. So you see, we don't know why God doesn't heal, but sometimes there's other people that still need to be reached. But I do know this, and I don't want to talk only about, you know, prayer and healing, because God works in so many other ways. We know that he works by having excellent medical care. This is extremely important. As I told you, I have not seen very many babies that were dying that I prayed for that suddenly were healed. You know, and you'd think, well, wouldn't it be good if a baby could be healed and the parents would then become a Christian or something like that? That doesn't happen very often. But what has happened over the 30 years that I've been involved with babies? Almost we get no deaths anymore unless they're severe congenital anomalies or extremely premature. Why is that? because of advances of medical science. So, so we have to have both, right? We have to have excellent medical care, and we have to have prayer, we have to have dedication, but it comes both ways. God is definitely uh, in the business of helping us by 
improving medical care. So um, those are some of the concepts that I have found of how we can help others is to... This, this I found actually in Ministry of Healing um, that I think is, is, should really wrap it up. If humans would open the windows of the soul heavenward in appreciation of the divine gifts, a flood of healing virtue would pour in. So we will have a flood of healing virtue if we open the windows of our soul to heaven. Another quote, the physician who desires to be an acceptable co-worker with Christ will strive to become efficient in every feature of his work. The true medical missionary physician will be an increasingly skillful practitioner. So this is why I believe, you know, God has a place for both sides of the medical missionary work. We must have the good, the good instruction and the good quality surgeries and the good quality teaching that makes us good physicians. Talented Christian physicians, she says, having superior professional abilities should be sought out and encouraged to engage in the service of God in places where they can educate and train others to become medical missionaries. So our, our university should be there. It should be there to help us to, to become efficient in our training, and it should also be there to help us to learn how to be better medical missionaries. And I think as our medical students start to see leaders who are doing this, they're, they're really good in their practice, they are excellent in their work, they are getting the best training in the world, but they also are willing you know, to pray with a patient and to, and to be kind and, uh, to a patient, that this is going to affect them. For a f- the physician, religion is not to be merely one influence among others, it's to be an influence dominating all others. That was a really excellent quote that I found. And if the physician faithfully and diligently strives to make himself efficient, if he consecrates himself to the service of Christ and takes time to search his own heart, he will understand how to grasp the mysteries of his sacred calling. He will so discipline and educate himself that within the sphere of his or her influence will see the excellence of the education and wisdom gained by the one who is connected with the God of wisdom and power. Another, physicians who want to perform their duties well must daily and hourly live a Christian life. It is important that the physician always be under the control of the divine physician. You know, the life of the patients are literally in the physician's hands. We're told that the sick and suffering will have much more confidence in the physician who turns to the Lord and those who pray. If, you know, the, the patients rely on our words. They rely on us. They trust us for what we are offering to them. And um, they feel a sense of safety and security. It's almost like the placebo effect. But many, many patients will get well just because of the way you treat them. It's the pri- privilege of the Christian physician to, pr- by prayer to invite God's presence in the sick room. If you cannot do this, this is something that I was really, really touched me when I found it. The physician who cannot, cannot do this, that is to offer prayer, loses case after case that otherwise might have been saved. Part of the reason is that the patient is inspired by confidence Gratitude and trust open the heart to the healing powers of God. The energies of the whole being are thus vitalized, and the life forces triumph. Remember that we should give thanks to God. When, when, the, when the patient comes and thanks you, we're not to take the credit to ourselves. This is a really important thing. All of us like to get a little bit of praise now and then, but we're never to take the take that praise to ourselves. We're always to turn it around back to God and and tell the patient that it isn't us that did this, that, that they are being healed by God. And whether we realize it or not, every single physician and dentist um, is entrusted with the cure of souls. So 
as, as human beings, as Christians in general, if you're a mother, if you're an educator, if you're a teacher, if you're a nurse, to you is entrusted the cure of souls. This is something that is extremely important. Um, remember that verse we read in Isaiah at the beginning? Ellen White says that that verse is not just for heaven, that if we live up to the, the word of God, if we are willing to put our lives in Christ's hands for the saving of souls, that passage is for here on earth as well. So that when it says the, you know, the deaf will hear and the blind will see and the lame will walk, she says that's for here. So whether that's done through some medical treatments or whether that's done through miracles or prayer, uh, I do not know, but it is important. And often we miss precious blessings just because we neglect to speak to people. You know, since last year, I think I've had more experiences, you know, than I did in the whole previous 30 years. Why? Because I too have decided that I will take that risk and step out and, st and talk to people. And sometimes I don't even think I said anything important. This is not to be uh, trying to say something about us, but, but um, here's what I've been hearing in the last few months that is different than what I've heard before. Wow, you really care. I've heard people say, I didn't think anybody cared, so why should I care before? And I've, I've had people say, you're the only one that looks at me when you talk. All the other people sit there and just writing their notes or, or getting on the computer. So tonight here we have three types, three groups basically. We have medical, medical students, we have those of us that are in our busy practice years, and we have those of us who are either ending or getting near the end of our careers or are already retired. And I believe that the Lord is calling each one of these groups to do a special work for him. I really do. I think every different group has a different type of ministry. One thing I've learned from my own experience uh, and from asking a lot of you is that it's much, much easier to do these things. I, I also have been carrying things around. I don't know if I brought it with me tonight. Yeah, I did. I've been buying books because if you, if you put the books out in the waiting room or whatever, people may or may not pick them up. I've noticed in hospital waiting rooms like Adventist hospitals, it'll often be the Adventists that pick them up and take them. And so I just buy them and take them to my room in my little briefcase. And when a, when a patient, I think, is willing to take something, I then give it to them personally, and they're not as likely to turn it down. I buy all kinds of little books. Um, one, one of my favorite right now is Dr. Arnott's 24 Ways you know, to Improve Your Health, so I'll buy stacks of those. And I buy ones on obesity because I'm taking care of lots and lots of patients that are you know, 397 pounds or 400 pounds. And so I give them these little booklets. And if they're computer literate, I use the bibleinfo.com so that you always have a little gift. Now, I don't give it to everybody, and I don't pray with everybody, but I've prayed with far more people in the last year than I did in previous the whole time. And I think some of you have done that as well, and I'm very, very happy to see that. But one of the things I have learned you may not be able to pray personally with everybody, especially in settings like where I work, but you can pray for everybody. So what I do is before I go to work in the morning, I pray for all the patients I will see that day because I might get too busy and maybe I won't even think about it. And then when I get home, I'll pray for them or after I see them, especially the kinds of people I've been running into and the mentally ill. Everybody has post-traumatic stress disorder. And, I mean, it's, it's just rampant. And so when you meet these people, they need something. They need to know that there is hope. A lot of these people have zero hope. So I've learned from my own experience and from talking to several of you that it's much easier to do these things if you're in your own private practice than if you're in a group, if you're working at a county hospital, if you're working at the VA hospital, or a big place where you're in with other people. It's much easier to do it. So I'd like to, I know there aren't that many medical students here tonight, but if any of you hear, hear this tape, I want you to think about this. In your career, 
think about how you can more effectively work when you are working alone in comparison with trying to take a job at Kaiser, for example. It's not as easy. So you can still witness and you'll have these occasional things that happen, but you can do it every day as Todd was just telling us. You can pray with almost every patient. You can give a book to almost anybody. And so you can have uh, that type of thing. The other thing is that every story I have heard of doctors or dentists starting um, Bible studies out of their practices or starting churches from their practices, these have all been private practitioners. These are not people that are in a big group usually, unless they're with one or two other Adventist physicians. So that's some of you. I'm also extremely happy that many of the medical students are opting for me- for mission service. This is something new. And so for those of you who are looking for uh, people to go to the different mission fields, there is, a, there is a change happening among the medical students and among the residents. They want to go on mission service. And so I urge uh, for some of you right here that are interested from Loma Linda, there's a huge mission field right now. Almost all of our hospitals overseas are in need of, of mission service. But you know what? Right here in California, right here in the United States, every one of our hospitals need more Adventist physicians as well. Um, it's down to the point at, at Glendale Adventist Hospital where I have worked in the past that there are very few Adventist physicians at that hospital at this time. Well, how else can you work if you're a medical student? What about your classmates that aren't Adventist? There's lots of them. And some of them will become Adventists and work with us if we reach out to them. I'm also amazed that the retirees are doing so much. The retirees, I believe, can can probably do the most right now. Believe it or not, I think this is the group that can do the outreach mission work, that can go to these places and stay for three months instead of one week or two weeks. So I want to encourage you, please, if you are retired or getting nearer to retirement, and if you're still in good health, take this opportunity and go help one of these groups that needs this kind of work we need it all over the world. And there's many of our members right here tonight that are doing work in some other area. And we thank you for, for sharing with us what you're doing because we need to have these in some way that we can you know, connect with one another and help these, these groups out. So prayer, sharing scripture, inviting people to your home, taking time, I think still taking time to smile to shake hands, to firmly ask people, what can I do for you, and um, how can I help you today? I've, I've really seen that really caring is the most important thing, not acting too busy, taking more time with each patient. You might have to see less patients. But I just cannot believe how many people, even just this week and last week, have told me um, how they were blessed to, to notice that I seem to care. And I really don't think I'm doing that much. Um, So in closing, I wanted to read four more little verses very quickly. The first is found in Zechariah 2, verse 5. If I can find Zechariah. All right, Zechariah 2, verse 5. It's not a verse I read very often. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all about her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The fire all around her is the fire that was surrounding Jerusalem. So this is the fire that is to surround the church. It's the Holy Spirit's fire. The Lord wants to be the Holy Spirit, send the Holy Spirit to be around us, and this is for the glory of the Lord. The second verse is, just across the page in Zechariah 4, 6, which, of course, is one we know well. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. None of this can we accomplish on our own. We cannot do this by trying harder, by praying more, by giving out more magazines, by doing anything in our own, on our own way. It's only by the Holy Spirit's power. And I think all of us here uh, know that. The third verse 
that I'd like to use in closing is Joel. And this is Joel 2.25. And I use this for myself and for any of you who feel like you haven't accomplished much, you haven't done much in the Lord's work, in your practice, you have lived for yourself, you have maybe uh, not thought too much about how you could witness in your practice. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This, is, this verse we often use talking about, you know, children coming home, kids who have gotten into drugs, or, you know, people that their life has been completely ruined and now they're trying to come back. I'm saying you can do that also with your practice. You can do that with your, your work. If, if you have not done what you think you should have done or right to do, you might need to make a change. You know, um, I didn't see that I was really making that big of a change as an intensive care person. I, I, I definitely was witnessing whenever I could to, you know, colleagues, but I didn't have really that good a luck witnessing to premature babies. But as I, as I thought about what I was going to do in retirement, because I was getting close, I decided that I would go back and take a year of preventive medicine. It's been a blessing. So some of you might think of that. I don't feel like my years were wasted or anything like that, but some of you might feel that 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 is true. And so there might be something. It could be some short course. could be that you're just going to go out and help with a mission project. You can restore those years that you haven't done everything that you wish you could have done uh, for the Lord. And the last one is Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1.14. All these little books in the Old Testament. I have to find them here. Zephaniah 1, verse 14. And this is my favorite for the evening. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. So, brothers and sisters... Physicians, medical students, nurses. In conclusion, we're promised God's help and his healing power. We need only to fulfill the conditions to be available to God, to look for opportunities, to look at people directly, to shake their hands, to pray with them. We need to remember that whatever is for God's glory will be accomplished here on this earth and for eternity. Thank you very much. Would you like to join with me tonight in just rededicating our lives? Would you please stand? Lord, I thank you tonight that we can be here together to consider what your purpose is for our lives in the medical field. We pray, Lord, that we may have a restoration and a revival of medical evangelism within our church, that this movement will not only grow and prosper, but that it will be for the saving of many souls for eternity. Please bless each one of us tonight, Lord, and may we get a good night's rest. May we wake refreshed in the morning to come back and to hear what you have in store for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.